We've been in Romans now for a year and a half. And it's only today, it's only today that we're actually coming to the issue that Paul wrote the book about. The actual situation that was happening in Rome that most scholars agree was sort of the impetus for the whole letter, Paul finally addresses it when we get to chapter 14. When we were early on in the study, I, said, I used a phrase a lot. You might remember this if you were with us. If not, those sermons are online, but I would always remind you, Paul wrote Romans to a real group of Christians, churches in a city in Rome who were dealing with tension in their community over ethnic and theological differences. So there was actually like a practical conflict that was going down, and Paul wrote this letter. The Christians in Rome were failing to maintain gospel unity. They were needlessly fighting and dividing over what Paul's going to call really low-level, disputable issues. And now starting in chapter 14, verse 1, which is where we'll be today, stretching all the way into the middle of 15, Paul's now going to finally address this issue. I was reading it this week, studying it, and it struck me the reader would probably expect, okay, now that Paul's going to get real practical, he's going to stop talking about the gospel. Like, no more doctrine, no more deep gospel talk, and Paul's just going to pivot into pure application. But what's incredible is Paul doesn't do that at all. What Paul's going to do in the passage we're going to read today is he's going to say, actually, what I need to do to help you is I need to actually get you to focus on the gospel even more. The reason you guys are failing to maintain unity is you haven't thought deeply enough about the gospel. You haven't worked it all the way in. You haven't gone all the way to the bottom. I need to actually apply the gospel to these petty little arguments that you're having because that's where all the power is going to be for transformation. River West. Paul had a conviction about the gospel that I fear very few Christians share. And I want to talk about it this morning. I think the average Christian thinks the gospel is what gets you saved. But then you grow, you mature, you become more sanctified by moving on from that to more sophisticated ideas and doctrines. Or maybe you try to, you, you try to work really hard in your Christian faith a lot of Christians think the gospel is like Christian basics. It's like Christianity 101. But what I need now is I need Christianity 501. And Paul said it's actually just the opposite. The gospel is so deep, so bottomless, that you never, you never get to the bottom of it. Paul would probably say something like the gospel is like a deep well of water. You, you, you can't even see the bottom. Maybe there is no bottom. And the thing that Paul would say is the deeper you go, the sweeter the water is. You go down deep, there's sweet water down there. And, if, and the deeper you go, the more you change and transform. I have this vivid memory from my childhood of when I was a little kid, the first time I ventured into the deep end of the swimming pool, okay? 
You know that moment when you're real small, the deep end of the swimming pool is like where kids go to die. You know what I mean? It's like so scary. And they put that thing across the water that's basically just says like, you know, cross this line and you're definitely dead. It's like, you know, and then you go under that thing. And I was, I was at the pool with my, my, my neighborhood friend. His name was John Sullivan. And John Sullivan was like every mom's worst nightmare. This was like the kid no mom wanted their boy hanging out with. John Sullivan was the kid who introduced me to Led Zeppelin when I was eight, eight years old, okay? He contributed to the delinquency of minors. He was the first kid who ever locked me in a closet, all right? This is John. So I'm, I'm, we're, we're going along the wall of the pool towards the deep end, and my heart is pounding. And we get out there, and we're, we're sort of like looking down. You can't see the bottom. And John looks at me, and he goes, check this out. And then he just disappears under the water. And he's gone for minutes. I'm like, he's dead. He's down there. You know where the vent is where kids get trapped? He's like stuck to the bottom of the pool. And then he pops back up suddenly. And I was like, what did you do? And he was like, I touched the bottom. And then, and, and then he was like, you should try it. And I'm like, there's, there's no way. I, I, there's dead people down there. I promise you. There's dead people, right? And then he, he pulled out the zinger, the, the, the phrase that no, no little kid can, can like refute. He goes, you scared? Are you scared? He goes, I dare you. I dare you. Try to get to the bottom. Try to get to the bottom. River West, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. This is actually me saying to you, I dare you. Try to get to the bottom of the gospel. You'll never get there. You say, what was the sermon about today? It was something about touching bottoms or something. I'm not sure. No, listen. <laughs> Here's the point of my sermon today. It's a challenge to our church. I dare you try to find the bottom of the gospel. Because if you do, you know what will happen? The sweetest water is down there. That's where all the change is gonna happen. That's where revival is gonna break out. Even here, there's a revival happening in, in, in the Midwest. You know what happens when, when a church says, we're going to the bottom of the gospel? Things start happening. Beauty breaks out, deep relationships, sensitivity to my own sin. I dare you. And I want you to dare me. And I want us to dare each other. The title of my sermon today is Major Gospel Truth for Minor Church Disputes. And what I want you to see as I read this passage now is that Paul just weaves in and out. He's constantly, he'll make a statement, then he'll go to the gospel. Make a statement, go to the gospel. Just, let's just read nine verses. Will you look at it with me? Romans 14, starting in verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. You say, Paul, you taking a swing at vegetarians? Like, that's not cool, bro. That is not cool. No, this is not about vegetarians, all right? We love vegetarians here, you're welcome. I'm just not coming to your house for the barbecue. But anyway, that's another thing. He said, don't, he, one person thinks he can eat anything, another person doesn't wanna eat vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own Lord, that's really the word Lord, Kyrios, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And also the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, straight gospel, straight gospel. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Major gospel truth for minor church struggles, disputes. I love this. Here's the mistake Christians make. When we read this passage, we try to jump immediately to, I wonder what the modern day examples of this are. You know, what's our meat and our, what our, our holy days? Here's the problem. If you try to jump too quickly to modern examples, you're, we're gonna make a mistake in our application. The first thing we have to do is we gotta make sure we understand exactly what was going on in Rome. And Paul uses these phrases, weak, weak Christians, and then he counters that with strong Christians. And we gotta figure out what he's talking about. So this is just a really brief overview, but I want you to look at your Bible and I'm gonna make a couple of observations. Notice verse two, the weak had a sensitive conscience about eating meat. See that verse two? The weak person eats only vegetables or something about meat. And actually later Paul says it also included wine. They were very sensitive about drinking wine for some reason and they had a very sensitive conscience about certain holy days. Verse five, one person esteems one day is better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Every scholar agrees, Paul's talking here about probably really strict observance of the Sabbath, plus some of the other Old Testament feasts, the Jewish feasts. There was something going on with holy days, Sabbath, some of the feasts, and whether or not to eat meat and wine. And there was one group who felt like really sensitive about that, and then there was another group, the strong, who felt totally free to eat meat, drink wine, and they, didn't view, they viewed all the days as being the same, okay? Here's the second thing you need to realize. Both of these groups, the weak and the strong, were doing what they were doing out of a genuine desire to honor Christ. This is so important. We start trying to apply this into our own context the, 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 the conflict Paul's talking about is two groups and they both just want Jesus to be glorified. Look at verse six in your Bible. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord with a thankful heart, but also the one who abstains exactly the same to honor the Lord and with a thankful heart. So do not think one group was like maybe um, not as God-centered or they, they weren't as you know, spiritual. Both of these groups loved Christ deeply. They wanted Christ to be glorified. They were deeply thankful in what they were doing. They were just disagreeing about what is the best way to bring the most glory to Christ. That was the conflict. Very important. 
So this wasn't a, this wasn't a holiness issue. I know there's sometimes in the past, Christians have used this passage to justify doing things that are clearly like not bringing honor to Jesus. Paul's not saying that. Both of these groups deeply wanted to honor Christ, okay? Here's the next thing. The weak brothers and sisters regarded meat and wine as unclean or uncommon or common, excuse me. I'll put this on the screen, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul wouldn't have said that if that wasn't the issue. By the way, Paul considered himself to be part of the group that are the strong. So he's like admitting the, the weak in faith, and they have faith, but for some reason for them, eating meat and drinking wine felt like it was making them unclean. It was bringing dishonor to Jesus. And so Paul says, that's, that's what their struggle was. And because of this, almost every scholar agrees that the weak were primarily Jewish Christians, devout Jewish people who had converted to Jesus as Messiah, who were still trying to work out how all of those Old Testament practices now get applied in Christ. And in general, the strong Christians were Gentile, Gentiles, and there was a little bit of a, of a, of a feud developing there. We can't be too rigid with this because Paul, who was Jewish, viewed himself as part of the strong. And there were probably a lot of Jewish Christians who, who um, also considered themselves part of the strong and vice versa. There were probably Gentile Christians who joined with their Jewish brothers and sisters and felt a conscience about this. But the point is it became ethnic. It became an ethnic tension and Paul really cared about that. In every letter, he said, ethnic tension, that's a gospel problem. We got we to gotta bring the gospel in and learn how to do life with one another. And then finally, what you need to realize is, and this is just, I just need to say this, it's going to come up next week. From Paul's perspective, the weak were wrong. The weak in faith were viewing this not in the best biblical way. Their conscience was noble, they loved Jesus. They were trying to follow Jesus, but Paul's ultimately gonna say, I'm, I'm, on, I'm with the strong. I don't have a problem eating meat or drinking wine. But what's amazing is Paul does not argue his case. You can read this whole passage. Paul doesn't even, Paul doesn't even work, try to hammer out this debate. Paul says, that's actually not the most important thing to do right now. I wanna show you what Paul did. He was so soaked in the gospel. Paul had been to the bottom of the well, people. He'd been to the bottom of the well. And he was so soaked in the gospel, he said, I know exactly what to do to help this church. I know exactly what to do. He said, I gotta got do three things. I've got a slide for this. These are sort of my three points here now. He said, I need to normalize conflict. I need to raise self-suspicion and I need to unleash gospel truth and gospel power. I'm not gonna try to solve everything because there's always gonna be conflicts throughout the rest of the history of the church. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna normalize low-level conflict. Conflict is normal. Conflict is normal. In fact, the absence of conflict is what would be abnormal in a church family. I'm gonna increase self-suspicion. Paul's gonna say like, gospel people, for gospel people, my heart is suspect number one, right? 
This is like the opposite of stranger danger. <laughs> the, the danger's in here, not out there, if you, if you believe the gospel. And then Paul says, and then I'm just going to unleash all the power of the gospel. So let's work through those together. I think this will be really helpful. This will be really practical. And again, the whole point is in our own church family, like let's build something beautiful, a beautiful community together, okay? So first of all, conflict is normal. Low-level conflict. Notice verse one. Look at verse one really closely. Paul does not say, as for the one who is weak in faith, stop it. He doesn't say that, okay? He doesn't say, everybody stop being weak and then the problem will be solved. In fact, Paul does just the opposite. He says, welcome all those brothers and sisters and stop getting into petty arguments about low-level stuff. Don't waste your time on this low-level stuff. Paul says, I'm not gonna arbitrate every tiny little non-essential debate that pops up in the church. I'm not gonna do that because that's not the point of the gospel. There's all kinds of things that we're gonna disagree on and none of them ultimately matter. The point is to become a community that knows how to have deep, rich relationships with one another, even in those moments where we don't agree. Do you ever feel frustrated with other people in the church? We're at church, so you have to be totally honest right now. Do you ever get annoyed with someone in the church? You're like, bro, I'm annoyed with you right now, okay? It's like, you ever feel that? You're kind of like annoyed. You get frustrated. Can I tell you something? That is completely normal. You say, I'm kind of frustrated right now with this other person in the church. You know what my answer to that is? Good. That's actually normal. That's actually healthy. We have this weird thing right now in our culture. I think social media has encouraged this, but it's like the second I get uncomfortable in community or the second I get frustrated or the second I'm annoyed or the second I'm uncomfortable, my immediate response is something must be wrong. I'm gonna remove myself from this community. Why do we do that? That's not, that's not gospel. I'm always going to bump into people in the body of Christ. I'm gonna make them frustrated. A couple weeks ago, um, Pastor Mike, who was just in here, I love Mike because Mike is just like, he's just so direct sometimes, but he does it in the most Christ-like way. And Mike came into my office a couple weeks ago and he sat down and he's like, dude, I was really mad at you last week. And I was like, thank you, Mike. I was mad at me too, you know? Thank you for just bringing that up to me. And we just had this really awesome, I, I, I apologized for something I had said to him in a meeting and it was beautiful. And I was like, Mike, this is so great because we're gonna bump into each other. We're gonna, we're gonna have to have difficult conversations sometimes with one another. That's just the reality of life in a church family. Think about this. You do not have to have uniformity to have unity. Those are not the same thing. We don't have to agree on every tiny little detail to have breathtaking unity in our relationships in the church. Amen? 
That's, the, that's, what, that's what's happening all across the globe right now is Christians who, who are, have differences of tiny little things are leaving churches and starting churches where every single person next to them thinks exactly the way they do about every tiny little issue. And you know what's happening? That makes the gospel look powerless because I don't need something miraculous to create a community where everyone agrees on the, on the minutia. I need the gospel to create a community where we disagree on some stuff and yet we love each other. Richard Baxter said it like this. I'm gonna put this up. In essentials, unity, yes. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity, which is just basically love. Love is, love is across the board. Those non-essentials, and I'm gonna talk about them in a minute. Liberty, there's freedom. But in the essentials, unity. So then the, the Christian looks at that and says, great, but how do I know which one goes where? So this is sort of like, you know, maybe you've heard it as like, there's like the close-handed stuff. This is like, I will, I will die for this doctrine. I will die for this truth. And then there's the open-handed stuff. It's like, it, it's probably pretty important, but it's open. Like, let's talk about it. Here's another slide. I, I actually like this one. Die for, divide for, debate for, discuss for. I got this from a, a professor at Western. The die for stuff is like, think of all the stuff that shows up in our creeds. This is like, you, you really need to believe this in order to be a Christian. We're talking the deity of Christ, the Trinity, substitutionary atonement. You know, there's like high level doctrines. You lose them, you're, it's no longer Christianity. And then you can just start going down, you know. Divide for, historically in the church, people have divided over stuff like how to practice baptism. What's amazing is in our church, we have people who are, who are still in the debate for over baptism. We, we, we practice believer baptism, but we have, we have people who think infant baptism is the more biblical way. And I love those brothers and sisters. And we have more of a debate about it. And then you get down into the discuss for, and this is gonna be Romans 14. Really, really low level stuff. Your view on the end times, you know, your view on politics, your view on whether or not to drink alcohol. This is gonna be super, super low level. Let's just talk about it, you know, and then love each other, okay? Contemporary examples. What's our, what is our like really, really low level stuff? What's our meat and our wine? Well, one example would be worship styles, okay? If you want to cause a fight in the church, bring up what's the best way to practice worship. Because there's some people who are like, the hymns for me bring the most honor to God. I love those old hymns. And then there's other people who are like, I don't know, the really, really awesome, big contemporary worship songs. I just want to worship God. And then I just say, put them in a room and let them just punch each other to death, right? No, it's like, we're going to try a little bit of both, right? Or... There's other stuff, Bible translations. You know, there are people like the New King James is the only one that Jesus loves. And then there's like, no, it's the ESV. You know, and then people are like, no, the NIV. And the ESV guys are like, that's the nearly inspired version, the NIV. And then it's a fight breaks out, right? Or let's just be totally honest, how the pastor dresses when he preaches a sermon. 
Many fights have broken out over this, historically, all right? And there's lots of opinions on this. I remember a couple years ago, I walked from that kitchen to that corner to get ready to preach, and on the way, first, somebody came and said, oh, I love your hair, it's getting really long, it's really cool, keep that going. Five steps later, a guy hands me a $20 bill and says, I can tell you don't have enough money to get a haircut. Go get a haircut. It's like, okay, I've kept the money and I did not get a haircut. I did get a haircut for this sermon, just to clear it up. And I almost hesitate to bring this up, but homeschooling versus public schooling. All right, how many fights break out about that? And they're usually kind of mean-spirited. You know, people are like, me, the, the homeschoolers are like, I don't want my kid to be a chain smoker. And the public schoolers are like, I want my kid to have social skills. And then they just fight, okay? And it's like, hey, maybe, maybe neither of those are perfectly ideal. And do we have to fight about it? Or could we just love each other and listen to each other? And then what Paul does, which is absolutely breathtaking, he says, actually, the real problem is not those issues. The real problem is how you're treating your brother and sister who has a different view. So he says next, verse three, look at your Bible. He says, suspect number one is your own heart. Suspect number one is your own heart. Look at how he goes, like here's the natural sort of default attitudes that happen in the church. I'll read it so you can just see it. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So what Paul's saying is people the, the, in Rome, the strong in faith kind of tended towards looking down on well, you know, we're more sophisticated and we've thought this through. And they sort of look down on the weak and they kind of walk around with their shoulders up. But then look, the weak do something different, but similar. The weak in faith pass judgment on the strong. So they struggle with judgmentalism. They're like, we think we're bringing more under Jesus. The, the weak in faith might be the ones going, you know, brother, I'm a little worried about your relationship with Jesus right now. And they sort of say stuff like that. And it's kind of judgmentalism. And Paul says, don't you see how we naturally in our hearts, we gravitate towards this posture towards one another? We have a, a phrase that we use around here a lot. I wanna put it up. It goes like this. If the gospel is true, I should always live with a constant suspicion about my own heart. I want you to think about that with just for a minute because we, we do not live like, when I say that in here, we're like, oh, that makes total sense. But then we get out there into the conflict or in my marriage spat. I want you to think with me, if Jesus had to die on a cross for my sin, I should constantly be suspicious about my own heart, my own attitude towards my neighbor or my wife. And I would do that. I would, I would do that because I actually love the gospel. River West, I dare you try to touch the bottom. Try to get to the bottom of the well my own heart. Gospel people pay very close attention 
to the attitudes they harbor towards other people in the body of Christ. We're just attentive to it. Wait a minute. How was I thinking about my neighbor? I want to pay attention to that. What kind of, whoa, what kind of stuff just popped out of my mouth about my community group leader? Or that sister who sits with, next to me in my river study? What kind of stuff just popped out of my mouth about that staff member or that, or that other person in church leadership? Where did that come from? And why did I let that come out of my mouth for another brother and sister to have to deal with it in a church family? And Paul says, go inside first. I have this... Um, illustration. I really love it, and I hope it's really helpful for you. I think about this all the time. I want you to imagine that you are always carrying around two buckets, okay? Just imagine you've got two buckets, and in one of your buckets, there's water, and in your other bucket, there's gasoline, and you're just living life you're, walk, you're, 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 you're going to work, you come to church, and you're, you're there in community, and suddenly somebody says something that's slightly derogatory about someone else in the church or about the leadership or the whatever it is, and now you have a decision to make. Which bucket am I gonna throw on that little fire? Am I going to throw gasoline or am I going to throw water? And the real question is, what would be the posture of my heart that would be the determining factor which bucket I'd pick up first? What's going on in my heart? If the gospel is true, my own heart is my biggest problem. And this, this is the, 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 what I want to say about this is, do you realize how liberating this is? If I, in my life, if I constantly was, Adam, what's going on? What's going on, buddy? And if every single one of us was like that, folks, it would be so beautiful, be so powerful. But then Paul says, now the last thing I want to do is I want to just, I want to unleash gospel truth. We look at verse three again. Let me, I, I stopped before I got to the last phrase of verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And now Paul's going to say, and now I'm going to, I'm going to anchor this in gospel. That phrase, for God has welcomed him. You realize how profound that is? Paul says, why are you looking down on your brother or sister? Why are you passing judgment on your brother or sister? Do you realize how God has treated them? Why are you being hypercritical of your neighbor in, in church? Do you know how God views her? Do you know how far God has gone to welcome her into the kingdom of Christ? Why would I treat her in a way that makes her feel unwelcome. So Paul's saying, 
The conflict is not the real problem. The problem is you got to go to the bottom of the well. I dare you go to the bottom. And what will happen, if you walked around seeing every person in the body of Christ through the lens of the gospel, it would completely change the way we treated one another. Because now I got to see them the way Jesus sees them. And Jesus sees them as someone that he loves so deeply, he died on the cross for their sins to welcome them. I love this. That, that word accepted, do you see that? It's, it shows up in verse one, accept them. Then it shows up here. And then in verse next couple weeks, we'll get to um, 15 verse seven. Paul says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is like a massive gospel phrase, welcome. It's really what it is, is it's, it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what this is, justification by faith alone. And now some of you are like, boring, ah, oh, doctrine. He just said justification, who cares? And can I tell you something? That is exactly the problem. That's the problem. I dare you, try to touch the bottom of justification. I know Christians who can talk for hours about the five love languages. Oh, mine's physical touch and words of affirmation. And then I say, tell me a little bit about justification by faith. What in the heck is that? And who cares, right? I know Christians who can talk for hours about the Enneagram and all these other personalities. Oh, that's, that's the explanation for all my relational conflict. And then I say, tell me a little bit about how justification by faith would impact our relationships with one another. And they're like, whatever, that's just boring gospel doctrine. That's the problem. We haven't thought about it. We haven't slowed down. What are the implications of the fact that I have been accepted before God as righteous by faith in Christ. How would that change almost all of my relational problems? See, have you ever thought this through? What I want, community groups, I want you to work this out this week, like talk about this, okay? So let me throw out a couple questions. Here, these are not questions necessarily that I'm always, I, these are just I, questions that I, Christians probably ask a lot of the time. Why am I so insecure? Why do I care so much about what other people think about me? Why am I always flexing in community? Why do I always wanna be the one who looks like I've got the right answer? Why do I always have to assert myself? Why am I always correcting that other, that other sister? Could it be that I haven't actually gone to the bottom of the well? Wait a minute, I don't need any of that to be accepted before God. God's already accepted me in Christ and He's accepted her in Christ. Here's a profound gospel truth. Look at verse nine. Paul said, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. You know what Paul's doing there? He's saying, do you realize Jesus Christ died, rose again. Now he's eternally alive, seated on a throne. You know what that means? Every single thing that I do, whether in life or in death, because he's the God of death too. Everything I do, I do before my king who's seated on a throne. And the only thing that really matters is what I'm doing right now or what I'm feeling is Jesus pleased with it. That's my number one consideration. Even how I'm treating my, my neighbor. 
And then, finally, and I'll just read this briefly, and we'll come back to this next Sunday. Look what Paul does now in verses 10 through 12. He talks about a future judgment, a deep gospel truth. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 10. Or why do you despise your brother and sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So powerful. Paul's saying judgmentalism, despising. Paul says, remember, a day is coming when every believer will stand before Christ and give an account. And my focus should be on all the things I'm gonna have to give an account for, not the things I think my neighbor's gonna have to give an account for. I've got enough problems myself, folks, right? Paul says, what if we lived, what if we walked around in this temporary world in our relationships with one another, always aware, I'm gonna stand before Jesus one day. What a powerful gospel truth. Hey, River West, let's go to the bottom of the well. Amen? Let's go to the bottom of the well. Do it in your river group. Do it in your community group. Do it tonight at the dinner table with your spouse. Do it with your roommates. Let's find, if we can, and we never will, the bottom of the gospel well. And I promise you, if we do that, we're gonna have to go park at the Lake Oswego High School parking lot as well because the community will become beautiful and people will wanna join us, amen? Okay, bow your heads and we'll pray and then we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, we love Jesus so much and all we wanna do, God, is learn the gospel here. We just want to soak in it. We want to, we want to work it out. We want to find all of, the, all of the deepest, most sweet places of gospel truth. We want to be people who are always growing, always learning, always thinking, praying, reading the word, talking about it in community. And most of all, we want our relationships with each other to reflect the truth that Jesus loves us and died for us. And so God, would you make that reality here at our church, we pray, to your glory, not to ours, to the glory of Christ and the spread of the gospel, we pray. Everybody said, amen.